Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. In the past 50 years, the advent of television as a medium for advertising has had significant effects on the buying habits of everyone, and especially on children. MRI scans of the brain and the development of neuromarketing are used to determine more receptive ways to market a myriad of products to all of us. Studies that follow the behavior of children show that the more involved a child is in the consumer culture, the more likelihood that the child will be depressed, be more anxious, have frequent headaches and or stomach aches. And the more heavily advertised products are more likely to be addictive to their users. Born to Buy, The Commercialized Child and the New Consumer Culture by Professor Juliet Shore of Boston College in Newton, Massachusetts, presents a detailed discussion of these changes in the commercialized marketplace that is brought into almost every home and school. I spoke with Professor Juliet Shore from her office in Newton, Massachusetts, and asked her to begin our program by discussing the changes in advertising that have occurred in the past 50 years and the problems that the current means of advertising appear to cause in youth and adults. Well, 50 years ago, there was advertising to kids with the um, start of television. You have uh, cereal, sugared cereal advertising, Saturday morning cartoons, and also some toy advertising. It, it was pretty minimal. It was low budget, uh, very, very confined amount of time per week that children were exposed to advertising. What's happened in recent years, particularly the last decade or so, is an incredible explosion in the amount of advertising that's directed at kids, in the numbers of products that are being advertised to kids, in the places where kids are being advertised to. They are absolutely bombarded. It's a kind of saturation bombing. One one advertiser I, I um, uh, talked to explained it as 360-degree um, advertising. And it's, of course, sugared cereals and toys are still being advertised to kids, but now it's the whole range of foods and all, all of it, pretty much junk foods of one kind or another. Um, kids are being advertised to for things that parents buy uh, in order to get kids to weigh in on it, like cars and hotels and tourist destinations. Uh, amazing things that you would never think of as being relevant to children. So in other words, the advertisers are giving weight to the influence that the kids have on the household and the household economic decisions. The core of advertisers' approach to kids is self-esteem. And they they basically are teaching kids that the most important thing in life is to be cool and that cool is the foundation of self-esteem, and that the product makes you cool. Amazingly enough, this is the way they market not only obvious things like you know, athletic shoes and clothes, which you see an immediate connection to cool, 
But even food and all sorts of products are marketed with this idea that this product makes you cool. Candy, uh, macaroni and cheese, you name it, they market it through cool. And so when it becomes a matter of identity and esteem for kids to have the product, that if they feel they need this product, um, that's a very powerful spur to asking. What that sounds like it's doing is taking away the core family values from the family and giving them uh, or having them usurped by cultural architects who determine what is cool. Well, certainly, and this is one of the reasons that, for example, religious conservatives are very critical of marketing to kids uh, because they want to retain uh, a kind of monopoly over their children's values and so forth. It's also why people on the other side of the political spectrum um, are very critical of marketing to kids, too, because they, too, have a strong cultural uh, progressive bent and and want to see their kids um, don't want to see their kids being brought up with this kind of materialist and decadent set of values that that are being pushed by marketers. Um, and I think if you look historically, what you see is that contemporary marketing to children is is very much directed at driving a wedge between parents and kids because what the marketers are saying to the kids is we know what's important for you. We're your friend. We're your ally. Your parent is the obstacle that you have to get over, and we're going we're gonna to help you do that. Your parent's a nerd, a creep. There's a lot of overt anti-adultism, I call it, in uh, both children's programming and in advertising and marketing to kids today. It's all about how the parent's a dork, I, the marketer, am cool, and you're cool too if you come along with me. So, is it fair to assume that the marketer's goal is to sell the product? Oh, absolutely. And that's, if, that's indisputable. Yeah, I, I would expect. So if that's the case, what is in it for the marketer to drive this wedge beyond selling the product, or is that the uniform goal? Well, it is the goal. I mean, they're not intentionally... Um, they, don't, they don't want to drive a wedge for the purpose of driving a wedge. But it has been shown to be a very effective technique for them in an era where parents are um, willing to, to listen to kids. So, for example, you take something like junk food. The consumption of junk food by kids has soared. In the past, you had mothers uh, standing at the gate, in a sense. In fact, it was literally called the gatekeeper model, saying, no, you know, that's too sugary a cereal, that's too unhealthy, no candy, you know, kind of um, putting barriers up to un- an unhealthy diet for their kids. In the, in the current model, kids don't ha- are not going to have that same concern for long-term health and so forth, and they are, they are easier to capture um, for junk food advertising. Um, so the... The, uh, to sell more junk food, then what the advertiser does is get the kid to ask for it. And so um, the other half of that equation then is to get the mom to say yes, which is another thing that they, they spend time doing. Although now that's become pretty much easy. Uh, there's not much parental resistance to junk food in the way that there was in the past. The nag factor has succeeded? 
Knack factor has succeeded, although it's also true that very recently you've begun to get a backlash to it because parents are getting fed up. They're getting exposed in the media by books like mine and you know others. others. Um, and so most recently you've seen uh, the, in the field um, children's advertisers talking about things like bringing mom back in or the four-eyed, four-legged consumer, the idea that you have to pay attention to mother, too, and not just the child. So they're, they're, they're under, there's a little bit of heat uh, on the marketers. You have an obesity crisis. The main thing that, that children's marketers do is market junk food. That's the number one product they market. So they're, they're trying to um, you know, scurry a little bit. Um, and to not to appear quite so anti-parent as they have uh, been in recent years. What are some of the ways that they market it beyond the one that I've noticed in the larger grocery stores, the breakfast food in the boxes at about knee level, adult knee level, have these very happy faces with big eyes looking right out at the two-year-olds? Yeah, well, you have the, all of the placement issues. They use a lot of special displays also for the kid stuff. They've done a lot of product innovation in food where they put in food colorings to make blue margarine, green ketchup, funky fries, which are oride of French fries that have a chocolate flavor, or they put sugar on them. Adding sugar is the, the sort of textbook way to appeal to kids with food. So there's a lot of that sugar-added stuff. They uh, put in sort of weird textures and colors. So that's one thing, to make these foods appeal to kids and things that parents wouldn't uh, and adults don't really want to buy. Another key thing is to uh, connect with media characters. Shrek cereal, Spider-Man ice cream, uh, Cat in the Hat, this and that. So the licensing agreements, uh, particularly now when a big movie comes out, you'll see a lot of uh, licensing with junk food. The SpongeBob movie that's out has a variety of um, licensed foods, also with the fast food companies. That's absolutely textbook as well, very, very common now to sell things. Uh, the other way they do it is they have a lot of promotions, contests, uh, and so forth trying to get kids to buy the stuff because they have a chance to win something fun. You also talk about viral campaigns, not a virus in the sense of an illness born by a virus, but a concept born by a virus of words. Yes, viral marketing is very hot in the kids' world now, and that's filtered down from the young young adult and, and teen world. It's a person-to-person -person marketing strategy in which they hire kids to go out and market to other kids. It's done in playgrounds. So it, it's typically with a new product. Uh, so when they want to roll out a new toy, uh, a new fashion style, um, it's every you know, CD in certain genres like hip-hop or, or rap genres now will have a viral rollout in which people get paid to go around and tout the product to others to their friends, to people on the street. I, uh, in my book, I expose a company called the Girls Intelligence Agencies, which organizes slumber parties for preteen or so-called tween girls. They, well, they get the girls to organize these parties themselves, and the purpose of the parties is to do viral marketing um, 
so a girl invites you know 10 11 of her friends uh, to market to them and she gets various types of either payment or perks for doing these sorts of things isn't it also set up where people will ride buses in pairs and talk about uh, the benefits of a particular product? Yep, and you find them in, uh, it's, that's called real-life product placement, where people are paid to um, either talk about or use and talk about or um, products. You see it in bars and restaurants, as you say, buses, streets, pretty much all over the place. Um, it's being done with ordinary people. There's also a, a huge um, segment of the industry which is directed at getting celebrities to use products. Many, many agencies, you know, what they sell is their ability to get connected with celebrities and, and um, for money or other things, get them to, you know, wear a certain kind of outfit, drink a certain water, you name it. I want to ask you about where the ethics went in this form of marketing, but first I want to say that in this edition of Radio Curious, we're talking with Professor Juliet Shore from her office at Boston College in Newton, Massachusetts. She's the author of Born to Buy, The Commercialized Child and the New Consumer Culture. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Uh, Professor Shore, where are the ethics in this? Where have where have the ethics gone? Well, where have the ethics gone assumes there was a lot there to begin with. I, I mean, I think what's happened is you had a lot of abuses in children's advertising in the 50s, 60s, and into the 70s. And as a result, and this was all television advertising. As a result, you got a, um, a set of guidelines that companies had to follow and that networks enforced. They're voluntary, but the networks enforced them, so they wouldn't take... Uh, they stopped taking commercials, for example, for toys, where the toy was doing things in the commercial that it couldn't do in real life. Um, so that that was sort of the the core of quote-unquote ethics. Um, and the reason companies... Uh, had to clean up that act was that the FTC began, um, you know, taking legal action against them for deceptive advertising. Um, as they have moved out to these new forms, whether we're talking about in-school advertising, of which there's now a lot, this viral marketing, internet marketing, there's been virtually no um, regulation of this and very little uh, discussion of what would be ethical. You have also small companies in many cases totally pushing the envelope, doing stuff that's very questionable. Um, but then the bigger companies jump on those bandwagons because of the competitive pressures. I found virtually no discussion of a, a, a whole range of important ethical issues. For example, in those slumber parties that, that people are invited to, there's no mechanism for informing parents or even the girls who are invited that they're being invited to a marketing event. That they, they might or might not be told that. There are no permission slips. There's no information given out. People are videotaped all the time now by marketers there's no control on what is done with those videotapes and where they're shown. I, I sat and watched videotapes at, at huge conferences. The people who were videotaped had no idea that those tapes would be shown in public venues like that. Are they giving their permission to be videotaped? Typically with videotape, you don't get a uh, written permission slip. In, in a focus group facility, there will be 
when kids are involved, there will be a permission form. But with a videotape, they assume that it's um, uh, consent is being given because they're there. But no, they you don't have you. You know, in scientific research now, we have very strict protocols about what's ethical and what isn't. It's absolutely none of this is happening in the marketing world. None of the ethics? Yeah, the, none the ethical of the, standards. None, exactly. From... Very, very minimal standards. Uh, with kids, it's just a sort of parental uh, permission uh, with kids, um, you know, under 17 typically. But you have a lot of cases, too, where... Kids are being used in experiments and research where there there's no permissions. I, I, for example, you've got kids being videotaped out on the street. You have them being videotaped in classrooms. Parents not even knowing about these things. In the public places where they can go, come and go, or Absolutely. are compelled to to stay and be hopefully attentive. Widespread abuses on the net too, in terms of the way kids are being marketed to. Describe that. What are those abuses? Uh, things like kids' uh, data being taken without their knowledge, um, personalized kinds of very hard-sell enticements to kids. Like if they would go on a site, then what would happen is they would then get a personalized message, you know, Dear Johnny, don't you want to buy such and such product? Um, Let's talk about the child's brain and how it is being delved into beyond the observational uh, basis that you've just described? Well, you have a new field now, which is emerging. It's called neuromarketing. And what's being done is that people are being taken and they're being shown images or listened to commercials or being given questionnaires, and then they're doing MRI scans on their brains to see what happens when they see certain pictures. Coca-Cola, for example, has been doing this. When you look at a Coke, what happens in your brain uh, at an ad or one ad versus another ad? There have, you have had the... Um, I, I was able to uncover some evidence of, of these kinds of brain scans being done on young people. I don't think there's a lot of that yet, but it's coming because like all of the other research techniques, they typically start with adults and then they go to kids. Um, and it's, it's a hot area of uh, marketing research right now. There is already um, a lot of activity in the children's world um, in marketing consultants who um, you know, come from the, those brain science areas in which they are selling expertise to companies. The uh, advances in neuroscience are, are, have filtered into marketing. Well, the neuroscience of the brain and marketing deals with the habit formation. I would think that the MRI uh, would show uh, a hot spot in the brain where somebody has, is seeing something or is doing something that has been uh, pleasurable in the past, and they're looking for the... Um, a repeat of that pleasure. Yeah, I think part of they're they're trying to do two things. Well, who knows what they're really trying to do? I mean, they're not saying, but I, I think that that's one thing. I mean, some studies that were just reported on this are looking at brand loyalty and how consumers who have a strong brand affinity will will show much more brain activity when they're confronted with that brand. For example, um, I think one of the big things they're trying to figure out is how to bypass the parts of the brain which are rational 
um, and which put up sort of some kind of barriers and and move straight into that part of the brain which is sort of pure emotion um, because that's how they get people to buy. I mean, the, uh, kids especially. That's that's really the basis of of a lot of consumer behavior in in America today. We have such a huge fraction of buying, and, and certainly for many products, is impulse buying. And so they're they're trying to tap into that. What is it that can sort of move the person person emotionally to get them to engage in that act of purchase without having you know that rational brain coming in and saying no, the product doesn't work, or you can't afford this, or you don't need this, or you're too fat, don't eat another you know candy bar or Big Mac. Well, that seems to take us to the link between some of the problems that children appear to have at a greater extent now, hyperactivity, for example, and their heavy involvement in the consumer culture. Yes, and what I did in my book was I, I conducted a survey of kids um, ages 10 to 13 in which I measured their levels of involvement in consumer culture and then tested to see whether the kids who who end up getting much more psychically into this, they care a lot more about labels and the kind of clothes they have and having a lot of money and um, how much their parents can give them and, and so forth, stuff and symbolic meanings of goods and they want to be cool, whether or not those kids um, are at greater risk for adverse outcomes like depression and anxiety, psychosomatic complaints like headaches and stomach aches, boredom, uh, whether they have lower self-esteem. And that is what I found, pretty strong results showing that the more involved a kid gets in consumer culture, the more likely they are to be depressed, to be anxious, to have frequent headaches or stomach aches. What do you find that link to be? Is that the the obvious, perhaps taking it away, taking the child away from the one-on-one direction that they would get from their parents or other uh, meaningful adults in their lives? Well, it, it's not really clear. Um, the kind of survey that I did, um, you know, we don't know all of the intermediate pathways between consumer involvement and, say, depression. But what the data seems to suggest is that the state of feeling dissatisfied with what one has, that that constant sense of um, having one's identity and self-esteem threatened by the lack of stuff, um, feeling inadequate relative to what other people have, that those feelings themselves are, are what lead to um, these these other kinds of problems. Now, that's a very psychologically unhealthy state to be in. It's a kind of Buddhist point that the way to happiness um, and well-being is through a reduction of desire rather than what the consumer culture is teaching kids, which is that uh, they're trying to escalate their desires, you know, infinitely and then they say, oh, we'll satisfy them by giving you the stuff, by satisfying those desires, and that doesn't work. There's always a new thing around the corner. It's a very, very insecure place to be because what's cool today is not tomorrow. So you can never actually stand still. What do you project to be the long-term consequences of this kind of activity in our culture? Well, from what we're already seeing, uh, certainly we 
we would uh, I would expect that problems of depression, anxiety, uh, low self-esteem, psychosomatic complaints will have a long-term basis um, unless kids get out of the consumer culture, unless somehow they're able to reject this. But, you know, if they stay in it, uh, this stuff intensifies. Um, there are a lot of other things that happen, too. You get um, addictions to many of the products that are being sold. Most heavily advertised products to kids are addictive products, sugar and fat and salt, uh, so junk food, a um, lot of alcohol advertising to kids, tobacco advertising is still going on. Um, so we know those are, you know, laying the groundwork early on. The, these companies are laying the groundwork to addict kids to these harmful products. Uh, obesity, of course, is epidemic in this country. And, and, you know, once you become obese, it's very hard, very, very hard to um, get weight off and keep it down on a long-term basis. We know that. So what is a person to do? What is a family to do when they're struggling to keep the family and the family emotions together and have enough money to put food on the table and pay for shelter? Well, you know, some of the simple things that as a family you can do are turn off the television, not spend money on those movies which are, you know, full of product placements and violence and sexuality. Uh, limit media exposure drastically. My children have grown up without television. It's the best thing I ever did for them. Uh, the second best thing probably I did for them is that we cook healthy meals every night and we eat together. And if you start with those two things, I think a lot of good good uh, outcomes will follow. It will be easier to keep your kids um, protected from the adverse influences of consumer culture. Julia Chor, author of Born to Buy, The Commercialized Child and the New Consumer Culture. I want to thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, can you tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately? Well, right now I'm reading the reissue of Barbara Ehrenreich and Deirdre English's For Her Own Good. It's a fascinating um, uh, account of uh, a century of advice scientific and expert advice to women and the ways in which it has um, uh, really had its own gender and, and very problematic agenda. It's a, it's a classic, brilliant book, and I recommend it to everyone. Professor Juliet Shore, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. My pleasure. Professor Juliet Shore is the author of Born to Buy, The Commercialized Child and the New Consumer Culture. The book that she recommends is For Her Own Good by Barbara Ehrenreich and Deirdre English. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.